0: one maybe
1: yes sir from their little studio in south africa it's time for the long and short
2: of it with simon hill phillen rogers and dale hayes that's right the latest episode of the long and the short of it and one with a bit of a difference this time no simon hill so i guess you can say the long and well the long if you're looking at uh, myself um But this episode of The Long and the Short of It brought to you by the Blair Athol Golf and Equestrian Estate, the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. Located just three kilometres from Lanseria Airport in Johannesburg, Blair Athol has it all. A world-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness centre, spa and restaurant facilities, On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanseria smart city. So why not visit BlairAthel.coza and take the first steps in creating your dream home. Come home to Blair Athel, an unparalleled living experience. And Dale, probably quite apt that this is sponsored by Blair Athel because, as we know, it's the spiritual home of our latest guest.
1: Absolutely. So we Gary player and his family lived for many, many years. His kids all grew up there. We tried to do, when we spoke to Gary, we tried to do an interview with a little bit of a difference to see another side of Gary. And, uh, you know, I think think everybody realizes in South Africa, he's very underappreciated. I mean, you only have to see the way uh, people in America and Britain and elsewhere in the world treat Gary as one of the greatest golfers that's ever lived. But we never saw Gary win tournaments in South Africa because we never had television at the time. And, uh, you know, the fact that he won his first tournament in 1955 and his last tournament in 2010, that's 55 years between his first and his last win. I mean, to have that that competitive fire still burning, to have that enthusiasm to still go out and play and practice is quite incredible. And, you know, he really is. He's he's very special. He's one of a kind.
2: Yeah, Dale, and like you said, we weren't, trying to get something different from Gary this time. And let's be honest, a lot of the lines of questioning over the years have covered a lot of the same material, and we kind of know where Gary Player stands on a lot of issues. And uh, the three of us on this occasion set out to get something different, and I hope we've achieved that. So without any further ado, let's hear from the great man himself, Gary Player.
1: Gary, you're 86 years old. You've done everything. You've won major golf tournaments on the regular tour. You've won major golf tournaments on the senior tour. You've won Grand Slam of golf. But the one thing you've never done, in fact, there are two things you've never done. The One of those things is you've never had two holding ones in one round, which your dear wife <laughs> Vivian did do, and you've also never broken your age by 18 shots. And I know that's something that you, is close to your heart
0: dad you know too much man you're a sharpie <laughs> first of all my wife reminded me of that every day of her life when we spoke about hole in ones and her third one which people don't realize was uh, actually leaning over the hole and stopped it from having three i never ever did that and i conceded and i bowed down to my darling wife who was a special woman imagine being with a woman for 72 years oh man i miss her It's tough, but anyway, we've all got some adversity to face up to in our lives and life goes on. Now, as far as the other question is concerned, would you believe it? I've shot 17 under my age, five times. I've beaten my age well over 2,000 times in a row, in a row, and then the other day now I play and I'm three under after nine holes. I hold my second shot at 10. I birdie the next hole. I'm six under par. With five holes to go, I can actually play them in two over par and beat my age by 18 shots. Nobody's ever done that. I choked like a hound dog. <laughs> I mean, I started, <laughs> the adrenaline started coming like I was a young man again. The hole looked the size of a Bayer aspirin, and I couldn't get the club back.
1: <laughs> Gary, you know, a lot of people don't realize, and perhaps some people have forgotten, that you were the third man ever to win the Grand Sam of Golf behind Gene Sarazen and Ben Hogan. And you did it before Jack Nicklaus, I mean, that when you think back, that must be hard to comprehend. A little guy who comes from a, a, a small country in the south of Africa, and you go ahead and, and beat all those other great names of the past.
0: One of the things in my life that I have every day of my life is gratitude, because I struggled as a young man so badly. But I went to a great school called King Edwards. That just was such a help. But gratitude, when I arrive at this uh, golf tournament, I get out of the car and I walk through Magnolia Drive, which you're not supposed to, just to say thank you for the blessings that have been bestowed upon me. So I come along there and win the Grand Slam before Nicklaus and Palmer and all these guys. But Americans don't realize that. They all think Jack did it before me. And that's all right. It's like Arnold won major championships. And Arnold was my hero. He was an icon. He did so much for golf. He and Tiger uh, drew more gallery and publicity than any players that ever lived. But Arnold Palmer won majors for six years. Nicholas won for 25 years. And I won majors for 20 years. But in America, they think that Arnold won for 25 years and Jack and I won for six. But so be it. That's not too serious. But, you know, knowledge of the game. And that's why I always enjoy talking to you, Dale. Maybe more than anybody. Because you understand golf so well. You are the best MC in golf that i know of why do you you should be a top commentator in american golf because you're much better than honestly you're better than any of one i'm on the turf
2: how are you feeling Dolph? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, i don't know i don't know how much
1: I, I can't afford to pay you right now because i don't have a job in america but if i did have the check would be in the mail and we will so never get it next year you'll celebrate being a professional golfer for 70 years that's pretty amazing
0: well, all my friends are dead. (laughs) So they won't be here to celebrate with me. (laughs) But but no, no, 70 years, a long time to be a pro. And what a journey. Can you imagine from a poor guy in South Africa to travel more miles than anybody that's ever lived to be the only man in the world to win the grand slam on the regular tour and senior tour. They all tried. They all tried. And uh, you know, it's just, The honors that have been bestowed upon me the love that i get dale if i tell you i was just in india for five days i can't tell you when i'm in south africa the love i get from all our people obviously there's some militants and people who, who hate white people and are jealous of you and are judgmental but we've got to put those by the wayside wherever i go china america it's just you know i actually get quite tearful uh, that people can give you so much love. It's, it's a special, special blessing. And I've had a journey in golf that no human being has ever come close to having. And it's just actually, it's its amazing.
3: Gary, do you think you got the recognition you deserve from South Africans?
0: You know, I don't know. And, you know, that's not, you know, I'm not a famous seeker. You know, I try and I'm not a believer in legacies either. I believe you contribute to society while you can, but one of the hurtful things that happened in South Africa, you know, I was I've represented South Africa for over seventy years now. Traveling, as I said, more miles than anybody else. I played with every and been with every president of the United States. I've been in, with royal families. I've been in the villages of India, the villages of of South Africa. So I've had a cross section of people, and I was offered actually, in today's term, forty-five million dollars to live in America. And a five million dollar home which i turned down because of my love for south africa uh, the biggest honor ever for me was receiving the medal of freedom that's the biggest honor in the united states that you can get the leading country in the world i never had one word of congratulations from anybody uh, in my country i mean it was it was quite sad but you know golf teaches you a lot and when you've had a a difficult life you know you learn to take adversity and you don't let things worry you it's like even with my wife dying who was something so special and i see her on my phone every day and i say to her listen won't be long before i'm up there if you find another man in the meantime i'm gonna (laughs) knock hell out of him." so don't even think about it but i said you know you life goes on you gotta say i had a feast with my wife 72 years it was a feast when you leave a table after having a feast you don't look for more food i was blessed to have love like no man she told me every day of my life how much she loved me I told her every day, we've got a family of almost 40. You know, I've only got one baddie out of 40. I, the guy said to my Jewish friend, you should be in the hall of fame.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you talk about joining uh, uh, Vivian and it's amazing as we get older, how, I mean, Simon wouldn't understand this or Dylan wouldn't understand <laughs> it. So they're far too young. But as you get older, you start to think about those things. Yeah. And and you you know you you start to to think and worry about you know what comes next etc. However, the oldest living major champion is Jack Burke, 99 yeah. years old. Yeah. Do you think you'll beat that record?
0: Whew, that's a, that's a a, a a very difficult task challenge. But Jackie Burke, I'll never forget when I started to do well. He said, "Let me see your hands." <laughs> And I put my hands on there, and he said, I don't see any mustard. You're not eating hot dogs. You're eating steaks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that.
0: And, you know, he he grew up with Ben Hogan. And, you know, it's interesting. I've never seen anybody swing the club like Hogan. I've never seen a man hit the ball from tee to green like Hogan. And of all the people I've met in my life, I've met people that know the swing from A to W. But Hogan was the only man I met that knew the swing from A to Z. The trouble is he wouldn't tell people. He would, I'm the black knight, he was the silent knight. I played my first US Open with him. I finished second. I had a couple of two irons, two foot from the hole, never said nice shot. At the end of the round, he said, well played, son. Uh, and the next day he said, good morning, fella. Five words and 36 holes. And somebody said, well, he was rather talkative, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs>
1: he did say the
0: After the round, sorry to interrupt after the round i was sitting in the locker room and he tapped me on the shoulder and his back was towards me right here i turned around and his face was right here he says you're going to be a great player one day son what that meant to me because he just didn't say things to anybody and he offered me a contract he never offered anybody a contract he offered me two thousand dollars a year that same day i was offered nine thousand dollars from first flight and vivian and i traveling from south Africa. We needed the money. We didn't have money, and I took the nine thousand. In retrospect, it could have been a mistake because he had confidence in me, and he would—he told me a few things of my swing that enabled me to win 165 tournaments, and they were—they were really very, very prominent, constructive, important things. But had I accepted that offer, he would have. There's no telling I might have won. And if there's always if, if I'd lived in America. I definitely would have won at least at least 13 majors. There's no question about it.
1: You mentioned, you mentioned Ben Hogan giving you a couple of tips, but there was a time that you called him <laughs> and asked him for advice. Tell us that story.
0: Well, obviously, he got the needle to me after not signing up with him. It shouldn't be obvious because he should know because he was poor and struggled. So I went with a fellow young man and he says, I'm in Brazil, so we're watching the time change and a friend of mine is his neighbor. And I said, I wanna phone Hogan. He said, look, phone him at 5 to 8 American time because he's only mean, he's not very mean then. He's had, <laughs> he's had a few toddies. So I set my alarm clock and, well, I adjust my alarm clock with a time change. 5 to 8, I phone him. I say, good evening, Mr. Hogan. He says, who's that? I said, this is Gary Player calling from Brazil. I said, Mr. Hogan, I'll get to the point. I've got a friend here, he and I are discussing where your wrist should be at the top of the backswing." Dead silence. He says, "I want to be real curt." I said, "Hello, hello." He said, no, "I'm here." He says, "I want to be real curt with you, fella." I'd never heard of the word curt, and I read a lot, and I think my English language is reasonably good. And I, he says, "I want to be real curt with you, fella." Who do you work for on the tour? I said, "Mr. Dunlop." He says, "Call Mr. Dunlop," and puts the phone. Down. <laughs>
2: Simon mentioned about being uh, feeling underappreciated in South Africa, and you touched on earlier perhaps the American perception that, uh, that, that Arnold Palmer had won more majors or had an extended major period of, of winning major titles. What are your feelings about being, having spent so much time in America? Is there an appreciation or greater appreciation in the States for what you've achieved than in South Africa?
0: You know, from the public point of view, I think there's a, a great appreciation. But for the people that are in the know, they don't want to admit that somebody outside of America could be better than theirs. I'll give you an example. My great brother and hero, Arnold Palmer, I won more majors than he did on the regular tour. I won more money than he won on the regular tour, and he played in a hang of a lot more tournaments than me. I won more majors on the senior tour. My stroke average was better on the regular tour and senior tour. I won more tournaments around the world. But the fundies here, they always put Arnold Palmer ahead of me. They don't worry about records. They don't worry. They don't look at the paper and say, let's look at the, the paper and see what this guy has done. You know, they don't even acknowledge that I won seven Australian Opens and still have the lowest score that was ever shot in the history of the Australian Open. In 1965, I shot two 62s in the same round, and my total was 264. They've never come close but they don't worry about those things. You know, it's just Americans have got to come first. And look, I, I understand that. I mean, America is a world of its own and I accept it. I don't I don't have any bitterness in my heart whatsoever.
2: Because it's obviously accepted that Arnold Palmer is one of the most loved golfers of all time. What is it about him? And obviously his charisma is, is well documented, but besides being American, Why is he a more loved golfer of your era than yourself?
0: Well, Arnold Palmer was an American icon. He was an American, and understandably so, that he should be held in higher esteem than I am. I understand it and I accept it. Uh, He was a wonderful man with patience with people. He had love for everybody. He loved golf. He loved to, you know, I want to play golf every day if I can. I just love playing the challenge of scoring well, exercising, and working on my mind still... I just love golf. I mean, the shots I hit in the par three this year—I don't know if you saw them in South Africa. The one was two foot from the first hole. On the fifth hole, I hit it one inch from the hole. I hit the drive down the middle of the fairway on the on the drive off. I mean, I just love playing golf. I love people. I love traveling. I mean, you know, Jack Dick said to me, "How can you still travel to India and all over the world?" I said, "Because I love it, and I have the energy to do it." Because. I've worked so hard. I watch my diet. I try and eat two meals a day. I exercise as much as I possibly can. I laugh a lot because as Dale knows we're always laughing and you see it on your show. how are we laughing at, and also if you have unmeasured love in your heart. So I went to India and this man said for longevity, you've got to eat half what you eat. You've got to exercise every day. You've got to laugh a lot and have unmeasured love in your heart. And that encompasses basically everything. You know what percentage of the world do that? 2%. Think about it. The most valuable thing in your life is your health. But people don't care about health. They over drink, they over smoke, they don't sleep enough. They don't laugh enough. I mean, you just look what's happened to Phil Mickelson here. Phil Mickelson was the number one PR man in golf in the world. This guy, the way he behaved with people, the way he satisfied sponsors, the way he treated young people, he was the best. So he says something that's wrong. He makes a mistake. So they asked me at the press yesterday, the press conference, what do you think? I said, well, you know, God pardons your iniquities if you make a mistake, as long as you repent. He said he's sorry. He made a mistake. But the poor guy is being condemned. He went from the top of the tree to ground level. And that's wrong. You, I loved what, pre, I play golf with President Trump every three weeks when i'm over here and he and and clinton and they both said to me of political differences extreme both said you've got to give a man a second chance Mm. in your prayer you say forgive us of our trespasses because we forgive those that trespass against us we live in a litigious judgmental hatred society with certain people in the world they'll try and destroy you so one press person today says the only reason i said that about phil mickelson because I represent Saudi golf and my representation has nothing to do with their tournaments. Mine is to teach women because they don't have many women playing golf there, to teach juniors, to build golf courses, and just give talks of incentivization. So this lady says, or this man says today, I didn't even read it, I've just told about it. The only reason Gary Player is saying that about Phil Mickelson because he, he, he represents Saudi golf. I mean, people are just, we're depressed today. We live in a time when they almost like prostitutes to a degree. You know, they'll sell anything, and they will try and destroy people. We live in a very vicious time of hatred in this world. And if you go further, that the, even to the extent of the wars, when you think what this man, Putin, is doing to children, pregnant women, old-age homes, destroying, raping people in front of their children. I mean, you know, we had Hitler we had hitler who killed six million people we had stalin 23 million mayo in china tens of millions probably close to 40 billion from what i've read or more and we've had the slaughter throughout time it's not going to stop it's not going to stop we're going to see things by certain countries i won't mention names it's going to continue and this is the tragedy that we realize what wars and hatred have done For God's sake, man, let's get rid of weapons and love people and put that money into human beings that are struggling, that are poor and have nothing. My life now is devoted into building schools in America for underprivileged kids. One in every seven children in America are homeless. Think of our poor kids in South Africa, our schools that is necessary, and the money that is wasted in South Africa. It's a tragedy what's happening in the world today. And as for countries like India and China and North Korea and South Africa that abstain from voting against Putin, it's a disgrace. Now, Israel are friendly with Russia, but at least they stood up and said, Look, we are your friend, which is good. Loyalty is a good thing. But what you're doing is wrong. I mean, I can love Dale, I can love my wife. And I often say to my wife, Viv, I don't think what you said there's right, but I love her and adore her. But it's not happening in the world. And It's something we've got to get accustomed to, I suppose, if we ever do.
3: Gary, how do you deal with the criticism? Because it has made the news, and like you say, you were told of it. Is it water off a duck's back? Do you just keep going?
0: No, no. What I say to myself, what I said is God's laws. I'm not going to worry about some person who's really, how much does he believe in God? How much does he really worry about decency? I'm not going to worry about those kind of people. You've got to channel your energies in the right direction.
3: And you phoned Phil Mickelson, didn't you?
0: I did. I phoned him because I said, I'm going to miss you at the champion's dinner. I said, I'm going to miss you on the tour because you were doing golf so much good. You were something special for professional golf, which means a lot to me. And, you know, I've always been a PGA man. I was president of our PGA and I resigned on our PGA because they. I said to the PGA at Wanderers in 1961, I said, if unless you vote two black guys on the committee, I'm resigning, and they never, and I resign. And Arnold Palmer and I saved the American PGA from extinction in 1959, plus minus, when people like Gardner Dickinson and Dan Sykes and a host of them wanted to break the PGA up. So I'm a PGA man through and through.
3: What was Phil like when you chatted to him? How's he feeling about all of this?
0: He was very brave. He was very brave, very calm, and just said, I'll miss being with the dinner and he was said some nice things but uh i, I don't know it's uh, it just goes to show how mean people can be in this world man i love i tell you it's, this is i've never i never know that the press were never like this when i was a young man yes freedom of the press freedom is such a wonderful thing you know they asked me at the masters and i'm doing an interview almost i must do 10 interviews a day here television etc cetera, etc cetera, around the world And they asked me the most significant thing about the Masters Tournament for me and my career. I didn't say my three wins, my top 10, 14 times, my most number of cuts, most number of times. I didn't say that. I said one of the most significant things was meeting President Eisenhower, a man who fought for freedom. You see, you don't get freedom through diplomacy. You have to fight for freedom. And freedom is dying in the world rapidly. It's dying in South Africa at quite a pace. It's even dying in the strongest believer of freedom in the world, the United States of America. And it's something that I don't want my great-grandchildren to one day say, you know, my grandfather lived in freedom, but we don't have it anymore. And the way we're doing and being influenced by a lot of communist countries in the world today, to stay away from it. And it's a tragedy because freedom is the most cherished word of your life. I can't imagine living in a society that exists in so many countries today that you petrified to say one single word without going to jail. Because I lived in a time of apartheid. And I remember very well, we had a thing called 90 days. And if you said the wrong thing, and I tell you as a young man, we lived in fear. It's all very well people today who never knew what apartheid was to talk about it. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. You were scared to say something because you got 90 days. I mean, it was a very tough time. And you know, this is what surprises me about South Africa, having had the apartheid system and what our black folk unfortunately had to go through, and yet they abstain from what's happening in, 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 in Ukraine. I find that, I wish I could speak to some of the leaders to try and comprehend their thinking. You know, if you're 20
1: years old and you lose a couple of years in your life, which a lot of South Africans did when they went to the to the army and stuff like that. You know, two years is, is is not a big deal. When you're sort of 50 years old, it's quite a big deal to lose a couple of years. But when you're 80 years old, to lose a couple of years through this COVID thing is 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 massive. And, you know, I mean, it obviously was very tough on you. Plus, you had Vivian Vivian very, very ill and then passing on. And you had the, the incident with Mark. You had last year the, the incident with Wade. It's been a tough couple of years for you, couple Tough, maybe three or four
0: years for you. Yeah, but you see, you've got to be grateful for adversity. When I say a prayer and I never go to bed, and I have a lot of faults. When I go to bed every night, I say a prayer every night of my life. I never miss. And I say, thank you for the difficulties that I encounter, as well as the pleasure that I enjoy in life. That's part of life, the adversities. And you can either feel sorry for yourself. And if you do, when you're crying, nobody cries with you. When you're laughing, the whole world laughs with you. And if young if people in the world today would realize that adversity makes you a man. I lay in bed when I was ten years, nine years of age, every night of my life, lying in bed, crying, wishing I was dead. My father was in the gold mine. My brother's fighting in the war. My sister's at boarding school. My mother's dead. That's what made me a champion. At the time I wanted to die, but I subsequently realized that's what made me a champion and everybody has adversity. And don't feel sorry for yourself. It's how you handle it. That's what counts. You gotta accept these things because life is full of it. You can't lie there and feel sorry for yourself. As long as you can hold your head up high, that's what counts. But I wanna tell you something, Dale, that's very fascinating to me at the moment. I'm watching the guys being taught to play golf now. Now, never in the history of golf, the teaching today, is the worst it's ever been in the history of golf. With all the technology, you'd think that the teaching would be superb. Now, in our time when we played, anybody who won major tournaments, I'm not talking about a tournament, I'm talking about major tournament, and in some cases more than one major. There are at least 10 to 12 guys can't play anymore, including debatably the best player that ever lived, Tiger Woods. He never won a major for 11 years. He won the US Open, by 15 shots, Dale, that's a miracle. The next week he's having a lesson and then it doesn't work. He starts hitting the ball all over the place. Then he has another lesson from another guy, gets worse. He doesn't win a major for 11 years. So eventually he gets tired of this, goes back to his old way of swinging and he wins the masters. Now, there are these 10 to 12 guys today who are doing commentary. They can't play anymore because they go to these guys for lessons and they, these guys have never been in the arena. Can you believe it? They've never been in the arena, and they convinced major championships how to change their swing, and they never play well again. Now, these coaches, let me tell you, I'm not being critical of them because they're very good for their members, for juniors and ladies at their club, but they're not capable of teaching somebody of a Tiger Woods or a Trevor Immelman. Trevor Immelman had the most... Gorgeous golf swing. He was on his way to such success. He has a few lessons. He told me. And a few lessons. Never played well again. Can't play. I'm talking about can't play at a standard of top play. He can go out and play. He can go out and shoot 68 in the practice. I'm talking about tournament play. Look at the guys. I mean, I don't want to mention names because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But even take a guy who's not a South African. Martin Keimer. Athletic. Brilliant mind. Brilliant golfer. He wins two majors. You never hear him again. Never hear it gone. I mean, it's just so sad with these new ideas. They're teaching golfers now to put their wrist in this position at the top. This is what they're teaching bow wrist. This, I mean, you know, I, having been around Hogan and Sneed and Demerit and Nicholas and all these guys, and they, they're teaching this because they see Dustin Johnson doing that. But Dustin Johnson has wrists of steel and he's a tall man and he's got time to recover. But no, you don't find many athletes like Dustin Johnson. So they're teaching this now. And then they're teaching this from the top of your swing to come over the ball like this. Come over the ball and suck your hands across your stomach. So you don't stay, you don't keep the club on line. You see them all practicing this. I mean, Jordan Spieth is, this guy, in my lifetime, I've only seen 20 players in 70 years that have it. Now, what is it? It's indefinable. Jordan Spieth has got it. But he hits the ball so badly he's the best as good as anybody that ever lived from 50 yards in he's lying six in the world if he had to have the correct teaching this guy would be number one on the trip no question about it but i mean what i'm seeing it's so sad to see these guys that were champions who can't play it's remarkable
1: you mentioned the name there that i wanted to ask you about and i'm going to ask you about another a few people that. Jimmy DeMarriott, he was a, firstly, he was a great character. And he won the Masters three times. He was a wonderful player. Uh, yeah, I was playing with Brandon
0: Grace. It was fascinating at Fancourt, one of my favorite, probably the best resort in the world. And I was playing with uh, Brandon. And he said, you know, Gary, when you won your majors, you had Palmer Nicholas Trevino, Raymond Floyd, Tom Watson, And these guys, you had to beat 30 guys. We got to beat 80. And I came back and worked it out. Something that he is completely oblivious of. When we played the tour, there were 55 major championship winners. They're not 55 major championship winners now. That's what people don't understand. People talk about golf without knowledge, and it's uh, you know they don't even know guys like Tommy Bolt, Julius Boros guys that could really, really play. There were so many of them. Don January, Jerry Barber, people, these young guys have never heard of them. So in other words, they they just didn't exist. And, and you know who might be the best player that ever lived? A man who lived and played 150 years ago, whatever it was, Bobby Jones. He played with a walking stick as a shaft, a walking stick. Think about it, and a ball that went 80 to 100 yards less than do than we do. There were spike marks on the green, no more spike marks. Every bunker you rate with your feet, Now they rake with a machine from Timbuktu to Johannesburg to New York. No, the greens today they play are on absolute spooker tables. If you put Bobby Locke on these greens, you would have seen putting like you've never seen in your life before. And yet nobody, when they rate golfers, you know they don't even put Bobby Locke in the top 50. They put Byron Nelson in the top 10. Bobby Locke would have
1: eaten Byron Nelson for breakfast. Now
3: you're going to get Dale going, Gary. No, he did.
1: Yeah, well, he didn't well he would have, but he went to America, he beat them like beat them all, didn't he? He did.
0: But I mean, they don't put him this is my point that I'm coming to that you asked in the beginning of the show. They don't even put him in the top 50. It's yeah. actually it's, uh, look, you, it is what it is. Jimmy De Jimmy De he was the epitome of what I love to see, happiness. The, the, one, the guys that were the best players and I ever saw in my life were extremely irritable. Now, they weren't irritable once they got clo- uh, when, when, the, when they got close to the ball. They were very irritable. But in life, generally, they weren't. Now, everybody, Tiger which is the most irritable guy I ever saw in my life. He doesn't even recognize anybody. I never did. Uh, Arnold never did. Trevino never did. But Trevino was joking all the time. Trevino is a replica of Jimmy DeMeritt. DeMerit De was always laughing. He said to me at the end, I said, Jimmy, and I loved him. And what a golfer. I mean, Brandon Grace never even heard of Jimmy DeMeritt. So but Jimmy Demerit would have beaten the pants off most of these guys. I mean, this guy could play with, he played with junk and how he played. I said to Jimmy, you're going to retire now. I said, what are you going to do? He says, I'm buying a boat with a crew of all women and I'm off to the Caribbean.
2: <laughs> what a legend. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> Gary, there's no doubt that the, the, the and I will to return to something that Simon touched on and you and Gary, you raised Phil Mickelson as, as one of the, The talking points in in modern day golf at the moment of the last month or so there's no doubt that the saudi arabian involvement in in golf is one of the biggest talking points and i know you mentioned you you have an involvement there so so give us your thoughts on that saudi involvement in golf the live golf and the suggestion that the the, the saudi government is embarking on some sort of sports washing approach to 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 getting involved in golf well
0: first of all my representation uh, to be repetitive is to teach women to play golf, to teach juniors, and build golf courses there. Now, Jack Nicklaus is building golf courses there, but I don't hear anything said about him. So this is a contract that I signed before all this tournament business started. So I don't get involved in the tournament structure, but I am a PGA man, and I just hate confrontation in life. I like communication. and I don't know, but somehow we could have come to a better conclusion than we've come to. I don't profess to know the right answer. I didn't get involved in that. I don't want to get involved in that. But you've got to remember if they signed up 40 of the top guys for their tour and the next shake or the present shake dies and the next shake doesn't like golf and he says, hey, I don't want to put these hundreds of millions or billions into golf. Stop. Now you can't go back to the tour. But I don't know what the answer is. I don't profess. I haven't got involved in it. And and that's basically the situation.
3: Gary, let's chat a little bit about the masters this year. I know by the time this podcast goes out, well, the masters will be done and we'll know who's won, but tell us a little bit about Tom Watson joining you on the tee as an honorary starter. Tell us a little bit about the build-up to hitting that first tee shot and how you feel every year before you go and do it and take us through that journey and experience.
0: Well, first of all, Tom Watson, his talk on the first tee was absolutely eloquent and brilliant and oozed in humility. And he has won eight majors. He has been a tremendous golfer. And he was on the verge of doing something historically that would have been the greatest feat ever accomplished in golf, and that's to win the British Open, the Open at at 59 years of age. I mean, and he hit the greatest-looking second shot that anybody could possibly hit. If he had a 1,000 balls to that green, he couldn't have hit a better shot. And I know that course because I won the Senior British Open on that course. There's a tiny space of about 10 feet that's on a slight down slope, and he hit on that and went over the green by five feet. But, you know, there are a lot of ifs in life. Ifs don't mean, I mean, I could tell you if stories at Augusta that stopped me from winning this tournament six times. One shot, one shot. But be that as it may. But Tom Watson has been a superstar and if golfers would only watch his backswing by the way, Tom Watson, Sam Sneed, and Bobby Jones had the best backswings of any golfers that ever lived. But be that as it may, uh, it's such a thrill to get on that tee because you've had Freddie MacLeod and Jock Hutchinson, which your viewers have never heard of. I used to get up in the morning to go watch them tee off. You had Byron Nelson, you had Sam Sneed, you had Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus. You've had all these guys on this first tee and you stand on that first tee and you say, I'm 86 and I'm still being honored with all the hundred cameras. And it's going to go across the world where 1 billion people over a month will see me hit one shot and they are saying all these nice things about me. How lucky am I? It is a dream. It is a dream.
3: How much do you practice ahead of getting on that tee? Well,
0: Jack Nicholas teases me. I get there <laughs> at quarter past six, it's dark. <laughs> I can't see where i the balls. So he says to me, are you going to go to hit a few putts? I said, yes, I am actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I get there very early and, uh, and hit a lot of balls. Uh, of course, you know, I'll never forget Dennis Hutchinson, who I love. And... Uh, you know, Dennis, I was at, he uh, won't remember this, this was playing somewhere in, in Pretoria. I don't remember the name of the golf course, quite honestly, but it was hot. And I was hitting a lot of ball drivers and he came up. And he said, Gary, you can't hit all these drivers in this heat, man. You're gonna wear your body out. I said, no, Dennis, I, I think another way. I think the more balls are hit, the stronger I'm gonna get. So it was just a complete different philosophy, not to say who's right, who, who's wrong, And that's why we've got to have respect. In life, we must have respect. And my father, who was a poor man, left education, left school in Standard 4, but he spoke three black languages, Portuguese, English, and Afrikaans. And he said to me, whatever a man, if he has a different political or religious or any view to yours, listen, because you might learn something and have respect for his particular view. You know, in South Africa today, If you have a debate with anybody, the first thing they do when they're losing the debate, they say you're a racist. That's the first thing they say. That's the way of getting out of the debate. You've got to have respect for people's points of view.
3: Last thing that I want to know personally from the Masters this year is the champion's dinner and Hideki Matsuyama, by all accounts, headed out the park and uh, did a very good speech in English as well, a three-minute speech to which you replied. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Uh, Well, first of all, I remember vividly, I was the first international player. I'm not even going to use the word foreign. Uh, I was the first one there and I sat next to Ben Hogan and uh, I felt sort of, you know, uh, what's the word? (laughs) Insignificant or whatever the word might apply, the the right uh, saying might apply. But it was a strange feeling being in this room with all these world champions as a young man. So I knew that when Hideki came into that room, being Japanese and not being able to speak English of any substance, how he was feeling. So I've been to Japan over 30 times and I speak Japanese reasonably well. So I made my speech in Japanese to him, which he got a shock and too much to the shock of all the people in the room. And then he got up and I think I relaxed him and he got up and spoke in English. And it was so good that every single player stood up and gave him an ovation. And I thought to myself, If only the United Nations could behave the way golfers from all those countries. Now I was the only one to win it. Now you've got 16 international people that have won the tournament. Isn't that remarkable? And that's true United Nations of golf. And you know, when the sad things about South Africa, the country that I adore, you'll hear the ministers of sport talk about all the sports of South Africa, and they never mentioned golf. They like to think it's a whitey sport, which it isn't, as we well know. South Africa gets more publicity than any other sport in the world by a mile, because there's a tournament played every single week of the year around the world, other than maybe Christmas or New Year, whatever it may be. And we have many South African representatives in that field every single week, irrespective of where it's being played. Look at this week here. all our South Africans playing in this tournament? hundred million people watching, whatever it is, a billion people watching, seeing South Africa, speaking highly of them. No, it, it's a tragedy. I mean, South Africa, what golf has done for South Africa, the jobs that it's created, the sewerage water that's used, it would go into the sea. We, the, the trees that are planted to fight pollution, the jobs that it's created, the incentivization for young people to play well of all colors now. I mean they just don't understand golf which is quite sad for me. Gary, I'm going to I'm going to give you some names and
1: literally we want one sentence. Okay. Okay, on each of the on each of these people. Sebi Ballesteros.
0: He was as charismatic as Arnold Palmer was in America, he was in Europe, but he uh, had a very short career and didn't know a damn thing about the golf swing. Simon Hobday. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved being around Simon Hobday. I mean, I just love that he was to the point. And I can tell you that I know that God has appointed him as his MC up there with
1: jokes. Papua Segola.
0: Papua Segola, my man, I loved very, very dearly. And I sponsored him to Australia to play there. And one of the things that hurt me is that some of the militants used me with a lot of lies against Papua.
1: Harold Henning,
0: Harold Henning, a wonderful guy who was a tremendous golfer, a really really good golfer, and an unlucky never to win a major. Ernie Els, Ernie Els, a man who had this magnificent golf swing. I just love Ernie. I think an underachiever. I think with the talent he had, he should have won at least at least eight majors. And uh, but uh, what he's doing for autism, I just love him.
1: Billy
0: Casper. Billy Casper, the most unrecognized golfer that played the U.S. Tour and one of the greatest putters that I ever saw. Bobby Cole. Bobby Cole, a man with such potential, I thought he'd go on to great heights. Something went wrong. Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, you can't say he's the greatest ever because Nicholas's record is the greatest ever. But really, I think he was the greatest ever that ever lived. But he can't be recognised it because it's not on
1: paper. But he's still got time to come. Who is the most underrated player around the world you ever saw?
0: I'd have to think. That's uh, that's a hard question. That's something I've got to go into depth to think about.
3: All right, you can come back to that question. It's like an exam. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, my last, my last thing. And I, and you've heard this before, Chi Rodriguez. When I asked him how old he was he said i'm 82 years old this was four years ago oh i said that's exactly the same age as gary player he said he said yes darling you tell your friend gary player that i'm going to pee all over his grave do you think that's going to happen
0: no 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 you can't Uh, look you never know what i don't even know if my alarm clock's going to go off tomorrow morning (laughs) But I mean, he's not looking too good health-wise at the moment. And I, I tell you what, if I played him a match today, I'd give him at least at least twelve shots around. A character, though, right? A character. You see, to me, if I was a sponsor, you know, I I look at guys who get sponsors to uh, golfers today. They never worry about their sponsorships. They take the money and they think they're so famous and they're dreaming. Chi Rodriguez. This guy had a sense of humor. Could hit trick shots. He was a sponsor's dream. And on the golf tour, when we were on the tee every day, Chi-Chi and I would be giving golf clinics and calling the people out onto the tee. It's such a big business now, Dale. You don't see that anymore. I mean, I was watching on the practice tee the other day, all these jets coming into the airport, Dale. G5, (laughs) uh, Falcons. And then then I saw the small planes coming in. It was all the caddies. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different world, Dale. How about a man winning three point six million million three three weeks ago? I mean, that's more money than Palmer made in his life.
1: Crazy, absolutely crazy.
0: And that's why, that's why we haven't seen anything. Because incentivization is a very, very important essential ingredient in life. When you've got staff, you, you obviously incentivize them. And now what's happening, these people that are going into American football, these guys that are seven foot tall, they kind of come to golf because you can play forever. You know, it's a, I yeah. mean, if you get older, the older you get in this game, the more money you make. Dale, I've got a contract with Rolex. It's been since 1965. They came to me this year and said, you know, we're going to, you've been a, an ambassador for us. We're going to give you a contract in perpetuity. I mean, you don't hear of that. Mm. So my grandson, James, who does the branding for my company says, grandpa, do you realize that, that uh, Walt Disney's got his body on ice. And Ted Williams, the baseball, they got their body on ice because they believe in time. There will be technology that will bring you back. And when you die, Grandpa, I'm putting you on ice because when Rolex phone and say, how's your grandpa, I'm just going to say he's cool.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You you mentioned family and and, and earlier Dale touched on, on what a difficult couple of years it's been for you. But that's included a couple of incidents with with your sons, Mark and Wayne. What's your relationship with your sons like now?
0: Well, my son with Wayne is uh, is very, very good. My, uh, my life with Mark is not very good because, you know, I, I, I was always taught to honor your mother and your father. And um, I just feel there's been a little bit of a lack of that. There's always two sides to a story, but he's gone his way and I've gone my way. And it's very sad for me, but... Uh, you know what do you do? I mean that's how life goes. And without getting in, I don't want to say anything detrimental about my son. And I accept it, and we we go ahead. It's one of those adversities that you got to face up to. But Wade and I get on extremely well. And my four daughters, huh? and my four daughters, they look after me like my wife did. <laughs> and my grandchildren, 22 of them, of all colours. We've got black. We've got straight uh, American. We've got uh, uh, Italian, we've got all kinds of grandchildren and the love I get from them and the love I get from around the world, it's a blessing.
3: Uh, Gary, just to pick up on, on what Dill said, part of the adversity and the tough things that have happened to you is that you had to sell your beloved Colesberg farm. How are you feeling about that? You
0: know, that was, I built that farm up from bare dirt. And there's no farm in South Africa. I don't care, and I've been to them all. There's no stud farm in the country that compared to that. But you know, when they're killing farmers all around, it's destruction. And when you're getting older, you can't defend yourself. And you see that happening and the talk of land grabs and things like that. You know, how do you farm and how do you continue investing money in a farm with this on your brain all the single time? So I sold the farm much against my better wishes, and it's very sad for me. I'm still in the horse business to a great degree. I still own at least 30 horses, but I bought them out now. But it's sad because all the staff that worked for me for 50 and 60 years, they still call me their father, and they still called Vivian their mother. Every Sunday, Vivian would have a church. I built a church on the farm, and she'd have all the little kids come to the church. And look, Vivian just adored them as she adores our Our children at Blair Athol School, where we have 120 young kids, we try to raise money right now for that to go on in perpetuity when I'm gone. So, but, you know, there's an old saying, everything shall pass.
3: Well, this podcast has almost passed before... Uh, I hand over to Dale for final words. I just want to know what does the future hold in store for Gary Player? I know that you're not want to rest on your laurels and how's the workout going? How many times a day are you exercising? How many sit-ups are you doing? Tell us a little bit about what the future holds in store for you.
0: Well, I think to live a long time, the less you eat, the longer you live and you've got to exercise and I exercise profusely. I- uh, You always also, have. I love going to the gym, but I, I go there because I know it gives me energy and I love people, and I love traveling, and I love working. You see, retirement is a death warrant. I don't want. To, I want to die standing up. And the other thing is, you know, I don't want to go to my grave with a lot of money in the bank. I, as we, the old saying, the last check I write has got to bounce. <laughs> I want to enjoy my money. I've worked hard all my life, and I want to spend it and enjoy it. And so I've got a lot to look forward to. Uh, I love life. I love people without again being repetitive. I love to travel. I love golf. I've, I've never, I'm, you can't be more happy than I am. But I make myself happy. You see, you have the choice. You have a choice to be sad or happy, negative or positive. I never teed up in my life ever believing anybody could beat me. When I played Nicholas in the final of the World Match Play Championship, 36 holes in October. Wentworth, long and wet. Every newspaper unanimously said he'll beat player. I beat him six and four. The next year I played him, I beat him five and four. Eventually I said to him, You're lucky I'm not playing you a third time. It would be eight and seven. But he's my best friend. We can tease each other. <laughs> but you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to be happy. There's an old song Be Happy, man. Be happy. You've got a trouble, you'll make a double.
1: Dale, <laughs> <laughs> final words from you? just i'd just like to say that we really appreciate the time and especially during masters week i know i've seen you at masters week i've seen how busy you are so we really appreciate the fact that you've given us the time you know you you and i have had a an interesting relationship because uh, when we played together we perhaps didn't get on quite as well as we could have
0: you were beating but me honestly, that was
1: competition. <laughs> uh, i think in the last 20 years we've got on incredibly well and yes. I'd just like I just like to say that you are in in the opinion of anybody that knows you're the greatest sportsman this country's ever had you've done more for South Africa than anybody's ever done for this country it's it's uh, quite unbelievable and anybody who doesn't appreciate that quite simply just doesn't actually know and they need to they need to actually get a life they need to read and they need to understand what you've done for South Africa what you've done for the game of golf, and I just want to say, thank you, Gary Blair.
0: Thank you, Dale. Love you, my man, and all your guys there. Take care. My love to our great country, South Africa.
2: That episode of The Long and the Short of It brought to you by the Blair Athel Golf and Equestrian Estate. For access to unparalleled living experience, visit BlairAthol.co.za and make an appointment to take the first steps in realizing your dream home. Blair Athel offers the ultimate and secure luxury estate living where lifestyle is a priority. A world-class championship golf course, outstanding equestrian facilities, mountain bike and running trails, diverse wildlife, helipads, tennis and squash courts, a high-tech fitness centre, spa and restaurant facilities. On top of that, it's the perfect environment in which to raise a family with easy access to nearby schools and close proximity to the planned Lanceria Smart City. So why not visit blairathel.coza and take those first steps. Come home to Blair Athel, an unparalleled living experience there it is a win for the ages the long and short of it simon hill dylan rogers and dale
1: hayes thanks for listening we'd ask our friends except we don't have any so please like and rate this podcast until next time